Hey, this is Mark A. Altman, and if you're a fan of the only gentleman secret agent with a license to kill and thrill, you should pick up my new James Bond oral history, Nobody Does It Better, available now in hardcover, audio, and digital wherever books are sold. Do you expect me to read? No, I expect you to buy it. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. If you've been enjoying listening to us, imagine how entertaining will be when you are watching us. Now you can watch the 430 movie with Steve Melching, Darren Doctorman, Ashley Miller, and me, Mark A. Altman, every day on Electric Now. How do you get Electric Now? You download Distro TV, Stir TV, Zumo TV, and soon the Electric Now app. And You just have to pick one. You don't have to have all of them. You don't have to have all of them, but it helps. And you can watch us on the Electric Now channel. Don't miss us as we bring you the 430 movie in your house in person. Need to make a call? Look for a police call box. That's where you'll find Two on Who, the new Doctor Who podcast from Electric Surge. Two on Who is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Uh, I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Mr. Steven Scarletta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. Um, As I imagine the world is getting used to now, if you listen to podcasts, is that now all the podcasts you love listening to probably sound uh, crappier while everyone is recording them over the internet at home. Uh, unless that's how they always recorded them, and maybe they figured it out better than we do. Point being, uh, if we sound subpar compared to normal, it is because we are all still isolating in our homes. Uh, me up in Burbank and Steve down in Culver City. Beautiful Culver City. Um, <laughs> but today we are very excited. Uh, one benefit, actually, of... The coronavirus is that normally we only record when guests can come to L.A. into our studio um, at Electric Surge. But now that we have to record online, that opens it up to people like our guest today, Mr. Vincenzo Natali up in Toronto, Canada. Hello, sir. Hello. How's it going, Josh? <laughs> Pretty good. Um, and we're excited because we've been trying to get uh, you on the podcast for a while. I think Steve had talked to you once and I bumped into you at fantastic fest last fall, but you know, it's, it's hard to line things up when people are only temporarily coming out to LA. Yes. And I feel like I'm a great candidate because I've had so many failed projects. <laughs> um, well, let's just get right into things. Our topic today is going to be your attempt to make jg ballard's high rise into a film um but before we get into that let's let's just kind of start at the beginning for those who maybe uh aren't that familiar with you or your backstory uh, why don't we talk about how you got into filmmaking in the first place uh well it's really a cliche now because there's so many people that did it this way <laughs> but um i grew up with a super eight camera and i started making films when i was around 11 with friends people I'm still working with. And, uh, you know, I just kept doing it until someone finally gave me 
money to do it on a larger scale. And um, the one sort of quirk in my trajectory to making movies was I, I did work at an animation studio for a number of years as a storyboard artist and um, which effectively was like a film school for me where I would, I was doing Saturday morning cartoons and I would be paid to, you know, translate scripts into storyboards. Any which was, cartoons people would be aware of? Uh, like Beetlejuice oh, would be one. Wow. Probably remembered fondly. <clears throat> um, and, uh, among others, but, uh, that, that was where I was very fortunate because I was paid to do that. And then for half the year I would be laid off. And in that period of time, I would make movies with money I'd earned doing storyboards. And, and that really functioned as a segue to what is effectively the Canadian version of the American Film Institute, uh, the Canadian Film Center. And uh, I was accepted there in the director residency program. And I did a short film there. And then that led to my first feature film, Cube. Um, so that was that was my lucky break. I think the confluence of those things was sort of what helped lift me out of, you know, the inevitable, inevitable doldrums of home movies into actually professional filmmaking. And then Cube, uh, like, I, I have a very specific story with that that I maybe even related to you at Fantastic Fest. I don't remember which was that was the I think the first movie I ever saw in the theater that I didn't know anything about. I was living in L.A. at the time. You know, this was kind of in the hoary old timey days of the Internet where it existed. But it's not like now with social media. We're like, I mean, all my friends are constantly posting every new trailer on Facebook when it gets released. And I just remember I was watching some TV local L.A. thing and they're just noting the movies that were coming out. And then they just said the movie Cube. And then they just showed this image, which was like somebody sticking their head out of one of the like, you know, connective doorway hatches. And my friends and I were just like, what the fuck is that? Uh, and somehow it just, I'd love the idea that someone made a movie just called cube. Um, and I think I saw it right after we saw the Orson Welles touch of evil restoration, you know, the famous one they did yeah. where they found his like 58 page memo and re-edited it, yeah. uh, which the Walton Rich one. Yeah. We saw that at the new art and then we went down to, uh, Century City, I think, and saw Cube. And that is one of those like perfect movies to see when you don't know anything about. Because the guy in the poster is the dude with his shaved head and, spoiler alert, dies in the opening scene of the movie. Uh, <laughs> and then, I, you know, and then the movie was great, obviously. But like it always really stuck with me and my friends as just this like unique experience. Um, but you saw that the same night as you saw Touch of You? Yeah. <laughs> We saw it at the, the Cineplex Odeon in Century City, which now I think is an AMC, this gigantic uh, theater. And in the theater we saw it, there, was, there weren't really that many people because I feel like they weren't necessarily advertising it. Um, but this was all a roundabout way of saying the movie really, like it, it definitely blew up, like uh, as sometimes little indie movies will do uh, and just kind of became that movie at least for people like I think our age and especially I was in film school at the time and the fact like fi eventually then finding out more about the movie and the fact that you only built one cube that you would redress. Like that's the kind of stuff that you go crazy for when you're in film school, just sort of like, I remember when 
Robert Rodriguez explained that when he shot uh, El Mariachi, he had a camera with three different lenses on it that you could like swap in and out. And rather than doing different setups, each take, he would switch the lens because he didn't have any money for film. But that way, when he edited it together, he knew it would look like he had money to do all these different setups, like that kind of stuff. Um, And I, I guess a roundabout way of question for you was when cube was done, like how did that, how do you think you were kind of embraced then by the industry, even though obviously it wasn't this huge hundred million dollar blockbuster, but it, it felt like the kind of movie where people were like, wow, I want to talk to the guy who made this crazy little Canadian, almost borderline student film. I did a lot of talking. <laughs> Well, it was a funny thing. It was a very strange. I mean, I, I think my whole career, if you could call it that, has been rather strange. Um, but <clears throat> Cube was a kind of success. Uh, it uh, it made a lot of money internationally in Japan and France in particular. It actually was seen by a lot of people theatrically in North America, not so much in Canada, not at all. <laughs> but, really. Um, yeah, no, no, absolutely. It had I, I guess I would have respect. thought it would have done well in Canada. This is a very Canadian kind of um, uh, thing where, you know, we, we eat our own. But um, <laughs> uh, so it didn't really play that well here. But um, but it was a kind of movie that over time had legs and it actually it got out on video and ultimately DVD. And a lot of people saw it there. And uh and then it got me an agent and I did the whole tour and I met a lot of people and I did a lot of talking. And, uh, you know, that was an interesting moment. I feel like it was sort of the best and worst of times um, to throw out that hoary cliche, but uh, uh, it opened a lot of doors. On the other hand, I was very disappointed because the things that I wanted to do, nobody in Hollywood, Hollywood wanted to do. And and I had been spoiled because the first movie I made was my movie. Yeah. And for all of the budgetary limitations we had, like I had total creative control and um, and I was sort of thrust into this world where people are always looking backwards rather than forwards. And um, so it was it was kind of a, a, a very exciting moment. You know, I would go to James Cameron's office and places like that, which was for somebody like me, like, you know almost hard to believe. Um, on the other hand, it was so crushingly disappointing because the things that I thought were special, other people didn't. And, uh, and so I spent years taking meetings. Wow. I could say that you, quite literally. Year. Was there, uh, was there like a specific thing you really wanted to be your next movie or were they kind of just well, several gonna, things? Well, oh, were you going to say, no, no, I, I wanted, I had a script for this movie called Splice. Oh. <laughs> and that I really wanted to make. And I, and I, it almost got made, God help me with uh, uh, Miramax. Um, <laughs> that didn't happen. I mean, that was probably uh, a and now it feels like break probably, in yeah, some ways. I dodged a bullet. Uh, so, yeah, no, I really believed in that film. And that was where my heart was. And I just kept, Every time someone would offer me something, I would throw that script at them. And, you know, for whatever reason, um, I could never get it going. So uh, 
Yeah, no, I had, I was like really ready to go on the second one. I think the lesson I learned and the lesson I would pass on to young aspiring filmmakers is you need more than one. You kind of have to have a portfolio uh, in your back pocket, not just one script. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's kind of almost the, the old cliche of sitting down with the, you know, high power producer and you get like one sentence into your pitch and he's like, don't like it. What do you got next? You know? <laughs> well, were you also, yeah. sorry, Steve, I, I keep seeing you wanting to say something. Oh no. I was just kind of curious. Were you offered any of the cube sequels by any chance? Or were you aware that they were? Yeah. No, they came to me. I think they had to actually contractually come to me first, but um, they came to me first. And I, I just, I was so young and naive. I, I didn't want to do a sequel. Uh, and I just, partly because I didn't know how you would sequelize that film. Like to me, I was compared Cube to Jaws in so much as in my mind, it was such a simple premise that there was only one story to tell. And just like all the Jaws sequels were, you know, not particularly good. Um, I just felt like a Cube sequel would be really difficult. So I didn't, I didn't want to go down that road. I didn't want to like be associated with them. I didn't want to be a producer or anything. And then they went off and did them and, you know. They are what they are. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was an interesting, I think with Cube, you know, had Cube been like some kind of crazy hit, financial, you know, bonanza, then I think more doors would have opened for me. But I, where I was um, at that moment was people were kind of interested in working with me, but they weren't prepared to take some great risk with me. Well, and that's uh, in a upcoming episode we're going to record with uh, Eduardo Sanchez, one of the two guys who made Blair Witch. And that oh, was yeah. a giant hit, but they had the exact same problems. He wanted to do it. He wanted to do it. <laughs> do, did they? And that was like the same cube was also 98. Wasn't it? Maybe, maybe that's why. Yeah. My, well, I won't get into, I have a, an indirect relationship with Blair Witch because my wife um, buys movies for Japan and, uh, and she bought Blair Witch. Uh, which was like a big deal because she got it for very little money and it was this massive success. So I, I tracked the, you know, progress of that. I saw, first of all, I saw the very first screening of that movie in Sundance. Oh, wow. It was very exciting. Um, and I really liked it. Uh, and then just sort of followed its progress, which was just so crazy because it was such a phenomenon on many levels. Um, but yeah, I feel, I think, listen, I think that that, that was a wonderful time to be an independent filmmaker. The mid nineties, probably all of the nineties was like the moment. Um, but I think you had to be very nimble to negotiate your way through Hollywood because Hollywood was pretty, even in some ways more intractable than it is now. Like I think that the pathway for a young filmmaker in that, business was really fraught and there are a few people who could you know like someone like Chris Nolan I think was tremendous who's tremendously talented was also very canny in the way he you know did took certain assignment type projects and found a way to make them his own um, but that was really how you had to do it and uh, uh, yeah so it was it was tough I found it it found it very frustrating I, mean, I did manage to make other movies but I never made a studio film mm -hmm. it just uh, and in some ways it that was you know i could i think there were a few opportunities that i i could have taken but i you know there was never 
I could never match what I wanted to do with what the studio wanted to do. And I, I, I was always fearful that I would just get sucked into some kind of nightmare situation. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it was, I'm sure lots of people will be looking back on that period and chronicling it now that some time has passed. And yeah, there's a, there's gotta be a book at some point. I have to assume someone is for sure. Well, so what, I don't want to jump too far ahead, uh, but what year would you say you started looking at high rise? I first, you know, it's funny. I first read high rise actually when I was at the film center, I remember I was in a used bookstore and I, um, that would have been like 1994, 95. And I, I just saw this cover. It was, uh, an image of a building that had like a fuse box handle on top of it. <laughs> like yeah. a bomb. It was right? actually, it, I, I later discovered it was a painting by this guy, James Marsh, who I love, who used to do all the um, uh, album art for Talk Talk. He did these beautiful album covers. They're just extraordinary. He's a British artist. Anyway, I just was attracted to the the cover and I read the book and it, it connected with me. Um, I grew up in a high rise, so it sort of really resonated with me. And then uh, I never thought about making it into a movie really, but after I made Cube, um, I connected with a lovely producer here in Canada um, named Gabriella Martinelli. And Gabriella had produced a number of David Cronenberg's movies uh, with Jeremy Thomas. And, and Jeremy is a kind of a legendary British producer uh, who, you know, famously won the Academy Award for Last Emperor, has done many wonderful, for lack of a better word, art house styled movies. And so Gabriella and I went to London and and pitched High Rise to him. Uh, and I, he, afterward the pitch, he just kind of looked at me blankly. <laughs> I thought it was a, it was a complete disaster. Uh, and then I was, I was actually make, I think I was working on my second or third film. And I saw Gabriella and I said, oh, you know, whatever happened with High Rise? He said, oh, we're doing it. I said, what? <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, oh, yeah, I loved it. So, um, but that was, I recall, and I'm sorry, maybe we're jumping ahead too quickly, but um, I recall beginning the process of writing that in around 2003. Oh, wow. So by the time all the rights had been sorted out and everything, like I was, you know, pen to paper in around 2003. Oh, were you going to say, Steve? Oh wow, no, I, I, yeah, because I noticed that the project was announced in like 2005. So I was like, wow, so you've been working on it for even two years up until it was announced. Well, and then I was going to yeah. ask the reason I asked the year is, uh, um, Steve had said something about a movie you were working on called Necropolis, uh, that was dated 2003. The press release about that. Yeah, that's just part of the idiocy of Hollywood. Yeah. I mean, Metropolis with um, uh, Paul Anderson, not P.T. Anderson, W.S. Paul W. Anderson. Yeah, that's right. Uh, had, I think he had really liked Cube a lot. And, um, and he came to me and said, you know, I have this idea for something called Necropolis. And it really wasn't anything more than, I don't even, a ghost story underneath the city. That was kind of what he pitched to me. And I said, well, that sounds <laughs> um, and that's kind of as far as it ever got, but it, because it was 
it was with Dimension, I guess. Yeah. Uh, it got announced, but I never worked on. I had I had maybe one meeting. Which is increasingly becoming, uh, I feel like, Steve and I's favorite revelations on this show, because uh, I think they highlight to what extent uh, the the press industry, not that we don't already know this, but really is its own separate, almost unrelated thing with the actual film industry. And they just, you know, they those people have jobs, they want scoops. Uh, but how, how often we'll ask somebody about a project and they're just like, oh, I maybe I had a meeting about that. I don't even remember. <laughs> no, whereas other things you toil on for years that no one will ever yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. I've written whole um, movies so, that uh, never got announced in the trade. So in some ways they exist even less than a movie that never got made. Um, but oh, then the other one uh, I was curious about that maybe was happening before uh, High Rise here is a movie called Tunnels. Oh, Tunnels is a wonderful project. Uh, yeah, I worked on that for years. Um, <laughs> so uh, that that's a, a children's, or if I guess they call it a young adult book series. That's um, uh, really lovely. Uh, also set in London. And Relativity was doing that. And after I had finished Splice... I think the producers, how they made the connection between Splice and Tunnels, I don't know. But they saw Splice and were kind of excited about the prospect of me working on that. Um, so I I spent a number of years working with a writer and then writing it myself. And then I went away to make this movie called Haunter. And I remember the last day of shooting Haunter, I got a phone call from the producers and said, uh, they're going to move on. <laughs> I mean, they're moving on to another director. And I never heard from them again, um, which was so weird. Uh, but anyway, uh, that again is also a very Hollywood kind of maneuver. And well, then they, uh, they never got. And I had, I had the last laugh. Yeah, because they went out of business, oh. and then uh, my managers secured the rights to the books, and I'm now working on that as a producer. Oh, oh nice. great! It came, back, it came back to me. Your storyboards and your concept art for it is is beautiful you know if people go back on your twitter they can find some of that and it's oh right yeah i forgot i put that out there yeah yeah some amazing work on that one well it's, it's nice when you have those yeah. little victories i know my writing partner and i always like when we're competing to get some gig and they we don't get it and then it just never gets made we're always like well they hired us maybe it would have got me <laughs> um yeah it's an odd i mean i'm i'm weirdly probably masochistically sympathetic towards them because I understand how hard it is to make a movie. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you need those elements and I guess I wasn't an element that was helping them get it made. So I, I think I, I was less distressed by the fact that they decided to move on to someone else uh, than I was by the way they did it. Like they never just one producer who I liked very much um, who wasn't necessarily a part of that decision called me to tell me, but none of the people at relativity spoke to me directly and which I was, I hurt me because, you know, I'd worked with them for a while and I'd done a lot of work for, you know, virtually no money. Um, I had a similar experience. I was doing, a, oh yeah, we, I forgot to mention that to you, but I, I was earlier in the emails, but uh, I was working with the Henson company on um, Neverwhere, adapting the Neil oh. Gaiman novel, uh, which had actually been a BBC miniseries at one time. 
which also takes place underneath London. So <laughs> there's three projects that take place under London so far, but uh, <laughs> uh, if you include uh, Necropolis. But uh, at any rate, um, I worked on that for a number of years and the script was getting quite good, I thought. Uh, and then they partnered with Lakeshore. And at that time, I had just finished a movie called Nothing, which is a very quirky film. And Lisa Henson, who I love, saw it and really liked it. And I think Neil Gaiman saw it and really liked it. And she said, we're going to show it to Lakeshore, who they were doing Neverwhere with now. And I said, I don't know if you should show them that. <laughs> and then almost the next day I was fired. Oh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I know fired might be a harsh way. They moved on. Yes, moved on. That's the They, they decided to the move play on. The way. The project never got made, but, um, uh, but that is Hollywood. That's, you know, you kind of have to have a thick skin. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's like, actually, I'm sorry. One more adaptation, the chrysalids. Was that around the same time as well? I couldn't find a date. Oh no, the chrysalids. I want, I love that book. Um, and I wanted to make the film and a couple of producers approached me with a script and I, I really liked the script. Um, and I had done, I can't remember if I did, artwork to kind of convince them that I should do it or I, it's been so long, but anyway, um, yeah, I really wanted to do that. But I, when I told them how much I thought it would cost, they just disappeared. Ah. There was like a, a, you know, a little cloud of dust where they were standing. <laughs> they just I think it was too scary for them. Um, they were trying to do it as a, you know, British Isle of Man, uh, soft dollar kind of production and, I just thought, like, you got to have $30 million to make that movie. Yeah. It's a beautiful concept art with that one. Oh, thank you. Yeah. No, I, I have some wonderful artists that I work with here. It's uh, it's great. And then I know you can't really uh, go into it too much, but just timeline-wise, I'm curious where Neuromancer fit in with all this. Oh, um, I definitely could talk about Neuromancer. I just want to be a little sensitive Um because I think that's still a project that's out there, not with me, but um, uh, Neuromancer, I started working on right when Splice came out. So that was 2010. And um, I wrote the script actually really quickly. I feel like it's the best script I ever wrote. <laughs> uh, and everyone was super happy with it, uh, to be honest, uh, including um, Mr. William Gibson, uh, who I adore. And the problem with that one, and I knew it going into it, um, was it was an, a very expensive movie and it's dark, you know? And, um, what I was, what I was sort of, if Splice had been really successful financially, I think that movie might've gotten a little bit of traction in the studio world. Um, but it, it had two, there were two obstacles to getting it made at that time. One was that Splice did not perform well theatrically. <laughs> and the other was that because of the Matrix, which blatantly lifted things from it, um, there was a feeling, particularly in the camps where I had uh, people who were supporting me, like at Warner Brothers, that that was not something they wanted to pursue. Um, so I had Joel Silver on board to do it with me and, uh, but they, he just couldn't convince Warner brothers. And then I managed 
um, to get Lorenzo de Buenaventura on board to help me. And he was at Paramount at the time and they didn't want to do it. Um, I'm not sure why, but I, I, I kind of think it just came down to the fact that it is, it's, I actually don't think it's terrible. Like it's not grim, like bleakly nihilistically dark, like high rise, but it, it, it has a darker tone to it. It's definitely an R rated movie. And at the price point that it would cost to make it, it just wasn't. And with me not being like James Cameron, it just wasn't exciting to a studio. So then the only other way to do it was independently. And we kind of whittled the budget down to $60 million. And at that time to make a $60 million independent film was virtually impossible um, without having huge, huge cast. So it just, yeah, it just, it kind of got crushed under its own weight, unfortunately. But I, I always felt, that's the thing. That's why it's nice to talk about High Rise um, because I, I felt very good about the High Rise script. I equally feel as good, if not better about the Neuromancer script. Like they were two projects I was really in love with. And I, I felt like, you know, had I been given the opportunity would have turned out quite well. Sounds pretty similar to what we talked about on our At the Mountains of Madness episode, which was also going to be very dark for how expensive it was. But also I thought it was interesting. You noted with The Matrix that At the Mountains of Madness had the problem that the book was so influential that like John Carpenter's thing, the thing, uh, so many, so many things had already kind of done homages and lifted from it that by now John Carter of Mars had the same problem. Yeah. They made that movie is that you look at the trailer and you're like, I've already seen this stuff a billion times. Um, yeah. Yeah. but yeah, let's, let's officially segue into high rise. Then I wanted to give a little info about the novel for people. Cause I feel like this, this is a book that I feel like is very well known in the UK and other places. Um, and I'm sure was well known in the seventies, uh, in America, but now I feel is not, not that famous of a book. Um, or I don't know how famous JG Ballard really is as an author either. I'm for people who don't know, he wrote the book that David Cronenberg's crash is based on. Uh, he wrote a, I don't know if it's a straight autobiography or autobiographical book, Empire of the Sun, which Steven Spielberg made into a early Christian Bale movie, little kid Christian Bale in the 80s. Um, but he was part of what was known as uh, the new wave of fiction, which I think was just basically taking the idea uh, that outer space sci-fi had been very popular with the kind of Isaac Asimov generations. And they wanted to do what they called inner space sci-fi, which all kind of took place in the real world. Um, which is something we'll get into too, with uh, high rise uh, and your adaptation. Cause in the, the book uh, that just basically takes place in real world London um, and, kind of uh pushes the boundaries of kind of reality as far as how crazy things get um and the novel came out in 1975 um i guess just the briefest of summaries of it uh for listeners is it tells the story of a uh high really tall high rise and kind of it's all a big metaphor for the lower, middle and upper class with the idea. Uh, I mean, I think basically true of how any high rise works is that <laughs> the cheaper units are on the bottom and then they keep getting more expensive as you go up. So this building is like a perfect 
uh, representation of society. Um, and then things start to go very Lord of the Flies wrong. Um, it has one of my favorite uh, opening lines that I'll just read. The opening sentence of the book is, uh, Later, as he sat on his balcony eating the dog, Dr. Robert Lang reflected on the unusual events that had taken place within this huge apartment building building during the previous three months. And already there's so you're like, he's eating a dog? What is going on in this book? Um, <laughs> and one, one fun fact uh, about this book that I can loop back to a previous episode of ours, which is that... Um, the character uh, in this of the architect who built uh, the high rise, um, who's named, uh, oh, I'm brain farting it, Royal. Anthony Royal. Anthony Royal um, was partly inspired by a, a real life architect named Erno Goldfinger, who was famous for building these high rises <laughs> in London in which he would always live in as like a testament to how great they were. Um, but the fun fact that's looping back to our James unmade James Bond episodes, because in case you couldn't have already told Erno Goldfinger, um, Ian Fleming just stole his name for the character Auric Goldfinger, because um, apparently he had a beef with this guy. So he named a villain after him. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, you already talked a little bit about you discovering the book. And I guess you you were saying, yeah, you, you and me weren't initially thinking this obviously should be a movie. Um, and I guess, well, even Jim Ford, I, I'm sort of fascinated by the fact that you co-wrote this with Richard Stanley during a phase where at least to the outside world. Um, and for people who don't know Richard Stanley, he did the movies, uh, dust devil and hardware. And then infamously, got fired from the Island of Dr. Moreau, which is now documented in a great documentary um, called Lost Soul. Wait, that's what it's called, right, Steve? Yeah. Lost Soul. Journey of the Making of the Island of Fan- Dr. Moreau. Really amazing documentary great. about his crazy experience on that. But then he basically uh, seemed to disappear, uh, was literally living on a mountain in Europe, and has only kind of recently resurfaced because of the documentary and just did the Nicolas Cage, uh, the color out of space. Uh, Cause talk a little bit about how that team up even happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, that was through Jeremy Thomas, actually the producer. So um, it, Richard is a fascinating individual and I, I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if you end up interviewing him at some point, but you'll, you'll find him to be one of the most articulate people you're likely to meet. Um, he's also one of the most interesting people I've met. Uh, you know, if, if, if I'm Lang in high rise, he's wilder. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he's, he's a very mild mannered soul. He is a very gentle, kind person, not like Wilder in that sense, but like Wilder, in that uh, he really has led an adventurous life and done things that I could only dream about. Um, I didn't even really so thought the- about that uh, as far as I, I, for other of people who don't know. Um, he grew up in Richard Stanley grew up in South Africa. He is a direct descendant of the famous um, I'm forgetting his name. The guy well, who delivered the line, the famous uh, Dr. Livingston, I presume, uh, whoever that Stanley was. Who- 
who who inspired the Kurtz character from uh, Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Oh, from right. Yeah. Book, which, of course, is one of the great inspirations for J.G. Ballard for all of his work, yeah. including High Rise. You know, there, uh, but... there, there's, there's some there, there's some Heart of Darkness DNA sewn into that novel. Oh, I was um, just going to say but, yeah. um, that um, he, before he became a filmmaker and one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen, uh, which just happens to involve Richard Stanley is when he was going around in LA uh, promoting La Soul, the documentary and kind of basking in his return to the industry. Um, I, in LA, I host something called Friday Night Frights where we just show horror movies all year round. And at the time I was doing that at the theater that was showing Lost Soul. So I was there and I showed hardware and Dust Devil and stuff. But they also showed documentary footage he shot in Afghanistan in the late 80s during the kind of insurgent ongoing war that Russia was having uh, with Afghani rebels and stuff. The and there was... Yeah, with the Taliban back when they were the good guys in Rambo three. Um, but uh, it, it, he shot all this documentary. He just like went out there into this war zone and he shot all this footage, but there was no audio and the theater thought it'd be cool to show the footage. But they're like, oh, well, there's no sound. Richard, why don't you get up and just like explain what we're seeing? And he did this like almost like one man show for people who haven't seen him talk and certainly have never met him. Uh, the best way I can describe him is that when I had to do a Q and a with him for hardware, I met him out on the patio of this theater. And for a split second, I was like, Oh my God, is this guy like, has he destroyed his mind with like drugs or something? Cause he just like seems sort of out of it. And then the second he starts talking, he's like the most intelligent, articulate person and he has just such an interesting way of talking, but yeah, I didn't, I never made thought about the, the wilder that he is just kind of this wild man filmmaker going out in the war zones with his camera. He is. And yet he isn't because he's not, he, he's an entirely different kind of person. He's a, such a gentle. Kind, yeah. He's not the macho man. Open, not at all. And not egotistical and, uh, just a very lovely human being. And, and we, we've kept up a correspondence um, ever since. And I, I treasure the emails that I get from him because they are, I would like one day to get his permission to publish them because they are among the most entertaining things I've ever read, <laughs> which are just about his life and experience uh, in Montsegur, France, where he, he makes his home. Um, but well, the I'm thing that's important to note about Richard, oh, sorry, to finish this thought is that, yeah. uh, and I was, see, when I first, I mean, I knew who he was when Jeremy introduced the idea of him writing with me. Um, and I was a little resistant just because I didn't see in his movies what he would be contributing to the script. Because at that point, I'd been working on the script for a number of years and had kind of hit a plateau that I couldn't seem to, I just, I needed help. Like I needed to get to the next level. And I just didn't know that Richard was from his films was the right person for that. And Jeremy assured me that he was. And what I discovered is that Richard is a fantastic writer. Like you, you don't know it from his films because his movies are, are actually, you know, quite visual. They don't really. Yeah. Dust uh, Devil is just sort on, of weird. There's nightmare no dialogue, logic. right? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's not a, I, I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen hardware, but I don't recall there being a lot of dialogue. Uh, but he, he is one of the most erudite, well-read people I've ever met. And, and his writing reflects that. And he really did bump it up to the next level. 
Um, so that's that's something to know about Richard. I think he even uh, Color Out of Space, which is a, a very good movie, is quite um, spare. Like it's not, you know, there's nothing novelistic about it. I mean, it's literate. It's based on H.P. Lovecraft, but it's you would you wouldn't know that side of him unless you read some of his scripts. And um, anyway, so yes, Richard. That's how it began. Was really through that introduction, and uh, and it, w- it ended up being a wonderful collaboration, mo- mostly done remotely because Richard would be off somewhere <laughs> in the wild, of, you know, Montsegur, France. Um, doing all kinds of interesting things. And and I was in the bowels of my basement somewhere in the <laughs> you know, um, Beachwood Canyon in Los Angeles. Uh, but we would, yeah, we did everything through email for the most part. And that's how we got the script to where, you know, the version you have it. But it, it was a long process. It's not an easy book to adapt. I mean, Ballard is famously challenging because um, as he probably would have said, his books are almost more like surrealist paintings than they are novels. And mm-hmm. they're almost like, there's there's about like 50 pages of story in High Rise and the rest is almost like a series of tableaus. Yeah. And um, and I was, you know, I, I would never even have called myself a writer when I started working on that script. I mean, I'd written my own scripts before, but I, you know, I wasn't seasoned at all. And here I was, having to take on, you know, I consider one of the great writers of the 20th century um, and a challenging book. And uh, and that's why it took so long to write. It took a long time for me to learn as a writer how to approach something like that. And then um, the book itself, you know, didn't lend itself, didn't give itself easily to the kind of movie I wanted to make. Because um, I didn't want to make a, a surrealist film. I felt that I felt that there was enough of a story and the the situation was plausible enough that it didn't need to lean on surrealist tactics. Like it could have a surreal ambience to it, but the more I could place it in the real world and the more I could make Lang a cipher for the audience and emotionally engage them in the story, I thought the more powerful it would be. Um, but that, that was quite difficult. Was it... Um... Was it when you first started it, was it always to take place like in the future versus where the original book takes place is during the 70s? And you kind of also changed the location as well from like London to like an island, which I thought the island aspect was brilliant because it even adds more isolation to the story. Yeah, I, I remember my original treatment, I had it set in London and Ballard read the treatment and apparently and wrote a letter. Like it was one of the nicest things, like wrote a letter saying he really liked it. Um, uh, but it, that one was set in London. But I felt like there was no way realistic to have this take place in London. Um, because especially when I was writing it, um, maybe in the 70s, which is what Ben Wheatley did. But when I was writing it, you know, London was like a, a matrix of CCTV cameras. So the whole idea of an event like this occurring in any kind of version of the real world was just ludicrous. So I, that's why I decided to take it away from London and put it in this remote spot because I really wanted to make, you know, what's one of the things that's difficult about adapting that story is there's no trigger for the societal collapse that occurs in this building. Like, it's not like um, the David Cronenberg movie, they came from within where there's a parasite that infects the residents of a high rise 
and they all go crazy. Like there's mm-hmm. no ease or there's no, you know, whatever, uh, microbe or something that makes people go crazy. It just happens because of the structure of the society itself. Um, so it's a kind of implosion. And I needed, I, I felt ultimately I needed that ingredient of isolation to make that believable. Um, and I, and I very much, I wanted it to be like 15 minutes in the future. I, I patterned the building a little bit after the Burj, which is this enormous building. It was at the time the tallest building in the world um, in Dubai. And, uh, and you know, Dubai has these buildings with on islands and stuff. So that was partly my thinking. And there was also a Ballard book called um, Supercans, which I didn't lift anything from, but I felt like... I felt like I was trying to, in updating the novel, kind of bring it more into what Ballard was writing in at that time. He sort of, his 70s novels are very, which are brilliant, um, but they're, they're not strictly narrative. And, um, uh, you know, and they're looking at British society at that time. His later novels kind of evolve and expand to being actually quite, narratively driven and um and are more about that moment so it was and super kansas kind of about a, a gated community luxury community in in khan and um france um where all kinds of nasty things are going on and so i i kind of wanted to bring a little bit of that into it um yeah oh and steve uh, and i realized we kind of skipped over talking about the because i'd been uh jerry thomas is his name right jeremy yeah jeremy sorry there's a guy in my high school named jerry thomas so (laughs) making me hard hard for me to remember um he'd been trying to make it since the novel was new right yeah i mean yes i didn't know that was what was so funny when i pitched him no one had told me this so i was like explaining it to him as if he had never heard (laughs) it before uh and he just looked at me like with this completely blank stare the whole time, little did I know, he had actually tried to make it with Nicholas Rogue years before. Uh, and who who wrote that script? I'm forgetting. I think it's I had uh, it written down, but now I, I can't. Two, well, I think it was Paul Mayersberg I have over here in the late 70s. Could have been one of the writers. That sounds right. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, because Jeremy, for people that don't know, Jeremy Thomas also produced Naked Lunch and. The Last Emperor and Sexy Beast. He's produced like some incredible movies, and so I guess they had, the first attempt, as Vincenzo was saying, was by Nicholas Rogue in the late seventies. And you know, for people again that don't know, he directed Performance and The Man Who Fell to Earth, and I believe Paul Meersberg also wrote The Man Who Fell to Earth. And the only information I could find on that script was it was set in the middle of the Arizona desert, and and then it looks like Bruce Robinson came in after that um and Wait, I mean, did you say you'd read that script yeah i read it i, th- I think i read it after i had left high rise after the project went kablooey for me but um uh it was as i was telling you it was given to me by um stephen king's manager <laughs> just because somehow it came up in conversation he's like oh i've got that script i was like oh god i would kill to read that because i love bruce robinson and for those who don't know bruce robinson wrote and directed one of my favorite movies with Nail and I, yeah. <laughs> um, among other things. He's kind of a brilliant writer um, and filmmaker. 
And that script I liked very much. It wasn't, you know, it's interesting. It's fa- like, I'm fascinated by adaptation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think the Bruce Robinson script, much like mine, wasn't faithful to the book in a literal sense, but it was very faithful in its tone and what it was trying to say. And it was outrageous. Like I have some vague memory of like somebody driving a Buick or something like off a roof or through someone's apartment building. Like it's crazy carnage that goes on in it. And of course it's Bruce Robinson. So like just, you know, vicious, dry British cutting wit throughout. And do you remember where it is interesting thinking of where each attempt of the film uh, set it? They were saying that, that the rogue one was Arizona. Yours is out right. on an island in the ocean. Do you remember where the Robinson one was set? I think that was in London. Okay. I think so. Yeah. That... I think so. Yeah. It was very, it had the flavor of a, a particular time that I have great affection for, especially in British cinema. Like it felt like it was written in the late 80s. Mm hmm. You know, somewhere like somewhere around the time that the cook and the thief, his wife and his lover was made, like it had that very um, uh, ostentatious and Baroque quality to it. Like it was really over the top and funny and um, nasty. Uh, and I, I got, I think I, yes, long ago I got his, there was a book long interview with him and he mentions high rise. There's a chapter. And again, I think he just, it was too expensive. He just, that's what happened to me. I couldn't yeah. get it made because this keeps happening to me, of course, but I, <laughs> I could never get the budget below $18 million. And what happened, you know, when I started working on the movie in 2003, the idea of an $18 million independent film wasn't crazy. Um, by the time I had the script that everyone was ready to make, which would have been, I'm trying to remember now, I guess that would be like around 2011 around time I was done with Splice, uh, it was over. You cannot, like Splice was, I was like so lucky to make that movie, which was financed independently because that was like a $26 million film. And after that, there was the financial meltdown and and the film industry never really recovered. And DVD died, which was kind of the, the life's blood for the whole industry, but especially for the independent film industry. Yeah. And, um, so suddenly, like a $5 million movie became a big movie, a big independent film. And uh, and I just, yeah, unfortunately, I, I just wasn't able to pull it off. But I, I think in his own way, Bruce Robinson kind of bumped against the same thing. Like, I think he was trying to make a $30 million movie of it. I found one quote from him when you were saying like how wild the movie was. He said that there was one scene in particularly revolt. It was one scene which is particularly revolting where a woman go mad, where women go mad and kill this man in a swimming pool. There used to be devices powered by CO2 with a needle in the end. So you'd stick it in a wine bottle to get the cork out. And the women are using their gas stabbers to blow them up like a beach ball. (laughs) <laughs> when you're giving your explanation like the the cook the wife his lover yeah that you could totally see that scene working in it yeah it seems pretty pretty wild i couldn't find much more on his version un, un, unfortunately but, actually peter greenwood would have done a fabulous high rise oh my god okay. yeah <laughs> that, would have, that would have been a good pairing I mean, it's, you know, the other thing about Ballard is he is distinctly British. I think when you read that first line from the book, which is just like one of the great opening lines of all time, 
it is so particularly laconic. And, um, you know, Ballard began his writing career as a writer of medical technical manuals. And he, I think, applied that same kind of dispassionate prose to these outrageous scenarios. So there, he, he comes from that school of surrealism that I like, which is like the René Magritte school, which is you paint something insane like an academic. Like there's no outrageous flourishes in the way you're presenting it, you know, as opposed to like a Dali who is like, the subject matter is crazy and the painting is crazy. The style is, you know, um, gaudy and wild. And uh, but Ballard, he does this wonderful thing where he, he presents you with the most disturbing, strange, morally unhinged scenarios and then does, you know, writes it like he's writing a textbook. It's a, it's well, a great definition. And I think a thing you and Stanley did well in your attempt to get it made, knowing that it was going to be expensive, as you noted, it's even though in some ways it, it I would describe the book as um, kind of deceptively straightforward. Like it does feel it has a, you know, it, it opens with this snappy line that like lets you know that, we're going to flash back three months and see what led up to this insanity. So there is kind of a beginning, middle and an end. But as again, as you were already saying, it's like not it's not that straightforward in the book for people who haven't read it and maybe are only familiar with it from the Ben Wheatley movie. Uh, it's kind of told from three different perspectives. Again, the lower class, middle class, upper class, Wilder, the uh, documentarian is the lower class. Robert Lang is the middle class and Royal, the rich guy who built the architect uh, is the upper class. And it feels like your brain wants you to treat Robert Lang as the protagonist. But in some ways, he's almost like the most, you know, it's a commentary on the apathy of the middle class. So it's like ultimately, mm -hmm. as the book goes further, he like becomes really unheroic and just kind of checks out. And Wilder is the one doing the thing that feels like your hero's journey where he's literally social climbing. He's like determined to reach the penthouse to face off against Royal, but he's doing awful things because he's just like descending into madness. And by the time uh, he gets to the roof, he's still holding his, his film camera, even though it's broken and doesn't work. And I think in the book, they note he's not even speaking a language anymore. He's just like grunting like an ape. And he's the one that Steve was alluding to uh, that gets murdered by all the women. So it's kind of like there is no real hero of the book because I think that was Ballard's point. So in that sense, I, I do think you guys, uh, I, I would say a thankless task, but you had to figure out a way to take these characters, be faithful, but like find the movie. Um, uh and I think you guys did a good job as far as how you treated Robert Lang, that you just had to decide he's going to be a little bit more of a hero. Yeah, I know we really, um, I mean, that was uh, my pitch, actually, I think, was that, you know, I'm going to tell this from his perspective. And I'm, I'm going to make Robert Lang our, the cipher for the audience. He's going to be our Jimmy Stewart. And... And much like Lord of the Flies, I was, you know, I was thinking of him as, well, he's Ralph um, and Wilder is Jack, if you know the book, mm -hmm. you know, the two, two sides of, of one mind, really. 
Um, and it's a lot of it was really going to be their relationship or the, the, the triangle between them and Charlotte, um, who we made uh, Royal's right hand person administering the building and administrating the building. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, I think the setup in the book is deceptive in that it feels like it could almost be, you know, a Michael Crichton thriller. <laughs> yeah. And then it, and then it disintegrates into complete madness. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I didn't want to betray the book in that way. Like I wanted to go to those places. I did want this kind of disintegration, but I wanted to, I wanted to emotionally carry the audience through the whole story right to the end. And I, I feel like that's in adapting Ballard and other movies um, and, uh, other, and having read a number of his books, I think that's what's difficult is that ultimately his main character will always choose to walk happily, you know, into uh, the, the madness, you know, to, 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 leave society and to leave um, the world of comfort and and what's known and conventional morality and walk blindly to potentially their destruction. So we, which we do at the end of our, our, our film as well. But I wanted, I wanted to leave that for the denouement. I didn't want that to happen halfway through the story. Yeah. And the other, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to start walking through the script a little bit more. But if you oh, had something sure, you were yeah. going to say. No, no, it's probably better if you do that. All right. We're going to hit pause right there and pick up the conversation in the next episode. I'd like to thank our guest, Mr. Vincenzo Natali. Um, I would encourage all our listeners, if you like the show, you should download the Electric Now app. It is free to download and free to watch. You can watch videos of all of our podcasts and the other podcasts on our uh, network along with the 430 movie and Inglorious Trexperts for you Star Trek fans. Uh, there's also lots of free movies and TV shows to watch on there, too. Um, if you like our podcast, I would encourage you to subscribe to it and to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, on Instagram, we're just Best Movies Never Made. On Twitter, we are at Never Made Film. We post lots of concept art uh, from movies we talk about and uh, other unmade movies. Um, I want to give a special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at the Electric Surge Network, including our producers, Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. Uh, until next time of part two of the Vincenzo Natale high rise episode, uh, this is Steven Scarlatta and Josh Miller saying we won't see you at the movies. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.